DiscerningHearts.com and the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology presents The Gospel of Divine Mercy, recorded at the 2016 Fullness of Truth Conference located at Prince of Peace Catholic Church in Houston, Texas. President of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology, Dr. Scott Hahn, and St. Paul Center Fellows, Dr. John Bergsman and Dr. Michael Barber, in a series of six conference talks, explored various questions surrounding the mystery of mercy. What is mercy? Is it an emotion, an action, an affront to justice, or an expression of justice? Moreover, what does it look like in action? Where do we find it described in sacred scripture? What do we need to do to receive it? And how do we share God's mercy as we go about our lives in the world today? During the course of the six conference talks, they explore these questions and more, attempting to plumb the depths of the all-important manifestation of God's healing, forgiving, transforming, faithful love with the help of sacred scripture. We now begin Conference Talk 3, featuring Dr. Michael Barber, who presents Jesus and the Miracle of Mercy in the Gospels. If we're talking about Jesus and we're not talking to him, though, we're going to be missing the whole point of this conference. Amen? And so uh, we just prayed the rosary, but before I get underway, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer myself. So if you'll join me in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us the Lord Jesus Christ, who reveals the fullness of your mercy. We ask you to help us encounter him in the pages of the Gospels. We ask you to help us be challenged by his teaching and be transformed by his grace so that we can fulfill his mandate Be merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. We ask you, Lord, to help us in this talk, to hear the words that you want us to hear, give us ears to hear them, and to put them into practice in our lives. And we ask all the angels and saints in heaven to pray for us, and we turn to our blessed mother, and we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There was a man, he was going downtown for a very important meeting. It could change his life. It was a job opportunity uh, that doesn't come around twice in a lifetime. And he couldn't find a parking spot anywhere. Every place was filled. Every curbside was taken. And he began to be filled with panic that he was going to miss this meeting as he watched the clock tick down to the hour that he was supposed to be there. And he finally went to prayer and he said, God, you know, I haven't been very faithful and I've let you down many times, but if you just help me find this parking spot that I'm looking for, then I promise I'll give up drinking and I'll return to church. At that very moment, a car pulled out in front of him and a spot opened up and he said, never mind God, I found one. (laughs) Sometimes it's hard for us to recognize God's mercy, even when it's right in front of us. In fact, uh, I'm very grateful that Pope Francis has declared this to be the year of mercy and that he spent so much time talking about mercy because mercy is almost like wallpaper, right? You never notice the wallpaper, even though it's all around you. And when we read the Gospels in particular or read about Jesus' teaching, we discover mercy is the golden thread that runs through the stories of his ministry And yet oftentimes we neglect that very important motif in the Gospels. John Paul II emphasized the importance of mercy in Jesus' ministry. And I'm now going to quote from the handout, so I hope you all have a copy of the handout. Um, Does anybody need a copy of the handout? Um, Do we have people who could pass the remainder out? Thank you very much. John Paul II said, Mercy constitutes 
the fundamental content of the messianic message of Christ and the constitutive power of his mission. Mercy is at the heart of everything that Jesus does. And we can see this in many various ways, many in various ways in the gospel. But I thought I'd just start with a very important passage in the gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. We read, And as he sat at table in the house, and uh, scholars have debated what exactly Matthew is talking about here, whose house is in view. And some people have suggested that it's Jesus' house, although that seems likely, unlikely, I should say, because Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Other people have suggested that it is Matthew's house. Remember, Matthew the tax collector. But that seems unlikely because Jesus has him follow him. He doesn't stay at his house. The most likely explanation, and I think it's near certain, is that it's Peter's house. Because we discover that in Matthew 17, when Peter returns home, there's Jesus there. Jesus is apparently living at his house. And the only other house in your context is Peter's house, where Jesus goes and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So, we read, As he sat at table in the house, Peter's house most likely, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this is a little bit awkward. Tax collectors. Tax collectors were not exactly what you call beloved figures in first century Judaism. I would say that uh, the IRS ranks uh, low on the level of popular bureaucracies in the United States. But the IRS paled in comparison to what the tax collectors of Jesus' day were known for. The tax collectors in Jesus' day, of course, couldn't post their rates using an internet or something like that. How did you know what the tax rates were? Well, they just told you what the tax rates were. How do you verify that? There's no way to verify that. And so tax collectors were known for charging exorbitant rates and pocketing much of it for themselves. The tax collectors were taken from the Jewish community, from the Israelite community, but they were ultimately working for the enemy. They were working for Rome. And you know the Romans, for the Jews, were the people who had come in and massacred the people. They had terrorized the people. The Romans would crucify hundreds, even thousands of people at a time. They would put down resistance with brutal fury and bloodshed. They would desecrate the temple. They were known for practicing all kinds of immorality. And Jews wouldn't even go into the house of a Roman because it was believed that Romans would kill their children and bury their bodies under their houses. They were unclean. The tax collectors had betrayed their own people and now were working for the terrorists. So many tax collectors and many sinners came and they sat down with Jesus. And the sinners, I mean, we're all sinners, obviously, but in context, it seems that these are public sinners. Typically in the tradition, people think of people like prostitutes. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They're scandalized. The Pharisees, many scholars think that the word Pharisee comes from the word to separate. The Pharisees separated themselves from anybody who was unclean. They believed that the reason Israel was under Roman domination was because Israel had failed to keep the law and had fallen into sin. And so the Pharisees wanted to separate themselves from anybody who would bring down such judgment. And so they were meticulous, as I think everybody knows, in observing the law and even going beyond it. These must have been interesting dinner parties. And notice it says, as he sat at table in the house, they came in and they sat down with him. It doesn't seem like there was an invitation that went out. It's just sort of expected. Oh, yes, the uh, tax collectors are here. You know, I think we all have dinner parties at our house. We have people over, family members. 
Sometimes we bring people over to our house that we want to build a better relationship with. Oftentimes it might be a, a, a boss. It might be somebody that we really respect in the community, maybe our parish priest. Actually, their company brings us great honor. Sometimes, every now and then, I know in my family, we'll have somebody over that's sort of a black sheep or somebody who's having a hard time fitting in. Maybe sometimes, you know, I'll look in in our student body, there'll be a student who's really struggling, kind of on the margins of the community at, at JP Catholic, where I teach. We'll bring them over, maybe, you know, help them along the way. This does not happen. We're getting ready for dinner. Honey, the embezzlers are here. Oh, yes, good to see you. Yeah, but what, yes, please come in. Yo, I'm sure we have plenty of room. Honey, the pornographers are here. Yeah, just have a seat right down there. Oh, yeah. Honey, the lawyers are here. Oh, no. (laughs) But frankly, it doesn't happen that we open up our house. We don't expect people to show up at our house. Our our food is for us. People show up expecting to eat at our house. I'm sorry, you've got the wrong place. Peter takes Jesus in. To his house, I'm sure Peter thought, well, this is a good thing. Look what a good person I am. I'm letting the Messiah stay at my house. What a great honor this is. But what an amazing disciple I am to open my doors up to Jesus. And Jesus is like, I'm bringing a few people over for dinner. (laughs) And so the Pharisees are a bit scandalized, right? And they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, so I like it, they're, they're, at, they're talking about Jesus, even though he's right there. I imagine if this was a movie, you'd see the tax collector, I'm sorry, you'd see the Pharisee sitting next to Peter, and he'd lean over to him and say, excuse me, why does your teacher eat with all of these sinners? And then the camera would zoom out a little bit further, and then Jesus is sitting next to Peter. He's like, excuse me? <laughs> and Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, obviously, not all of us are called to the same kind of ministry Jesus and his apostles are called to. And those of us who have small children and Our family men have to be careful about who we let into our house. That that makes sense. But what Jesus shows us here is something that is rather shocking. It's scandalous outreach. Scandalous outreach. Jesus is inviting the sinners to come to him. Why? Because he wants to validate their sin? No. He recognizes they are unwell. They need healing. They need to turn away from their sins. The Pharisees, however, want nothing to do with this. The Pharisees pride themselves in their observance of all the laws. But Jesus quotes Hosea, where the Lord says, I desire mercy. God wants us to exhibit mercy. He wants us to evangelize. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And this is the hallmark of Jesus' ministry. Jesus reaches out in mercy to all who seek him. He turns no one away. We see this later on in Jesus' ministry. Now, turning to the Gospel of Mark, we read, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples, and a great multitude Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He can't see Jesus. And let's be honest, he really doesn't even know fully who Jesus is. He knows Jesus is the son of David. Okay, that's true. That's true in and of itself. 
There's a lot more we could say about Jesus, right? He's the son of the father. We could say a lot more about him than just his genealogical line. This guy has a minimal knowledge of who Jesus is, but he calls out to him and he asks him, have mercy on me. He doesn't fully understand who Jesus is. And we read, and many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Possibly here recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, it would seem. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus doesn't call him. Isn't that interesting? He sends his disciples to go. Sometimes we call out to God. And we say, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Sometimes it feels like God isn't speaking to us. Sometimes it may feel like God is not responding in the way that we want him to respond. But God is always merciful. Jesus is always merciful. And so Jesus tells the disciples, go and call him. Jesus wants to work through his disciples. And they call the blind man, saying to him, take heart, rise, he is calling you. Notice how the disciples have changed their perspective on Bartimaeus. A few moments earlier, they were telling him, shut up. Don't say anything. Don't bother him. Right after that, Jesus says, go call him. They say, oh, take heart. Now all of a sudden, they're merciful to him. Aren't we like that as Jesus' disciples? So often, we need to have our attitude adjusted by Jesus' merciful love. Take heart, rise, he is calling you. And throwing off his mantle, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. Look at his enthusiasm. He wants to come before Jesus in the worst way. And the moment Jesus calls him, he doesn't hesitate. Let us not hesitate when we hear him calling us. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man's thinking, really? You got to ask me that? Doesn't Jesus know? He's looking at a blind man. Maybe his disciples are thinking, boy, Jesus is thick. You know, I mean, he's blind, Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Jesus, son of David, come, come here, come here. Is there anything I can do for you? Let me see. I don't know. What's your problem? Jesus knows exactly what he needs. Notice Jesus wants him to articulate his needs. Jesus wants him to say, Lord, I need this. Jesus is always merciful, but he wants us to come to him and say, Lord, I need this. He wants us to go to him with our petitions. He says, Master, let me receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, and he went his way. Well, what is his way? He followed Jesus on the way. So Jesus says to him, Go your way. Well, what is his way? His way is to follow Jesus. Jesus gives him his sight so that he can become a follower of him. Jesus shows us his mercy. He pours out his mercy upon us to enable us, to empower us to be his disciples, to heal us. Now, I got to be honest with you. When I was younger, I would read all of these stories of Jesus' ministry and the many miracles he performed, and I would think to myself, boy, I really missed the boat. I was born in the wrong period. And when you read the stories in the Bible and you hear about these amazing acts of God, God parting the waters of the Red Sea, wow, wouldn't it have been great to see that? 
The manna in the wilderness. Oh my, bread from heaven. The fire that came down on Elijah's altar from heaven. Consuming the sacrifices. Jesus' public ministry. And I used to think to myself, boy, I really was born in the wrong period. I wish I could get my hands on a flux capacitor. <laughs> Go back in time and see some of these things. Because now we just live in the age of the church. It's kind of like the epilogue. All these great miracles happened in the past, and now, you know, well, every now and then you hear about, you know, some miracle, an uncorruptible or something, then you look at it, you know, incorruptible, okay. Uh, no, I mean, there are legitimate miracles, of course, but when I was younger, I didn't have that, I didn't have that perspective. But as I grow older and I study theology, I realize that the real miracles are the miracles that take place in the ministry of the church. That Jesus' miracles during his public ministry were just a sign pointing towards something greater. Jesus demonstrates his mercy in miracles. Miracles of healing, like the story of Bartimaeus. He shows us his mercy. He reaches out to those who are in need of it. And for those who ask, Jesus shows his mercy. But he continues to do that. How? Well, the Catechism of the Catholic Church explains that the miracles of Jesus were really meant as signs pointing forward to the sacraments of the church. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, we read, Jesus' words and actions during his, during his hidden life and public ministry were already salvific, for they anticipated the power of his paschal mystery. They announced and prepared what he was going to give the church when all was accomplished. The mysteries of Christ's life are the foundations of what he would henceforth dispense in the sacraments. Through the ministers of his church. And then it quotes Leo the Great. For what was visible in our Savior has passed over into his mysteries. The physical, the visible, physical signs that Jesus performs are signs of the spiritual realities that are present for us in the sacramental ministry of the church. Jesus' miracles make visible what is invisibly present in the sacraments. I love how the catechism describes Jesus' powers in the sacraments. It says, the sacraments are, quote-unquote, powers that come forth from the body of Christ. The sacraments are powers that come forth from the body of Christ. And then the catechism cites three specific passages in a footnote. The healing of the paralytic, the healing of the masses who come to Jesus, and the healing of the woman with a hemorrhage. We read about that story in Luke chapter 8. We read, as Jesus went, people pressed round him. And a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years and had spent all her living upon physicians... So she spent all her money on these doctors, but no one healed her. Sounds like she had the kind of doctors that could have, well, let's just say, they would have been invited to Jesus' meals. <clears throat> she gave all her money to these shysters who weren't able to help her. She came up behind Jesus and touched the fringe of his garment. Here's this woman struggling for 12 years with the flow of blood. She sees Jesus and she recognizes the one who can heal her. And so he's passing her by in the crowd and she reaches up and she just touches the fringe of his garment. And immediately her flow of blood ceased. Jesus says, Who was it that touched me? Now, this is a little bit ridiculous. Just a few months ago, uh, my family and I did something that was a tremendous blessing. 
we got some help from family members, and we took all of our kids to Disneyland. And all of my, I have five kids and, uh, at home, and we just found out we've got another one coming on the way. So six kids. God help us. And we're very excited about that. Well, five kids, we took them all to Disneyland. My sister, who's also pregnant, took her three kids to Disneyland. And then my mom and dad and my sisters and cousins and aunts, I think we had a, had a party of like 20 people walking through Disneyland. And that seems like quite the crowd, right? Well, everybody goes with a crowd at Disneyland, right? So as we were walking through the park after a parade, there were all these people pressing in, and I immediately recalled the story. Jesus walking through the crowd. All these people are pushing up against you, and, you know, there were many people in the crowd who were sort of rude, and they were trying to cut in front of us and, you know, elbow us and get around us. And it's really amazing, you know, what you see at Disneyland. And Disneyland is such a fascinating place, right? You have people from all over the world, and they're taking all these family pictures. And I'm always tempted to try to get in the back of all the pictures people are taking. (laughs) I think the coolest idea would be to pick one family and just follow them around the entire day. (laughs) And just get in every picture in the background. Make some goofy face. Wouldn't it be cool to be with them when they got their pictures developed and they're like looking through them? Wait, there's this guy in the background. And this one. He's in every one. (laughs) I love that. You get all types at Disneyland. And you get all these people at the end of the day and it starts off magical and wonderful and it's like those commercials on television and by the end of the day, everybody just wants to go home. Everybody's pushing up against each other, and they're playing that nice, you know, good night music, and everybody's leaving, but, you know, it's sort of like everyone's jockeying for positions to get out the door. And I imagined the scene in the Gospels. Jesus is in a crowd like this, and everybody's pushing up against him. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes, who touched me? <laughs> I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I did that right now at Disneyland? I'm like, wait, who touched me? <laughs> And the disciples are just befuddled. Actually, I like what it says. Jesus, who touched me? And all denied it. Not me. (laughs) I didn't touch you. (laughs) And, you know, good old Simon Peter stepped up, but he's just honest. Master, the multitudes surround you. And they press upon you. But Jesus insists, someone touched me. Not just pressed up upon me. It's, the Greek word's different. Opto is the word here. Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone forth from me. This is the line the catechism quotes in reference to the, to the sacraments. Power has gone forth from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. And how she'd been immediately healed. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. She sees Jesus passing by. All I need to do is touch the fringe of his garment. But the catechism explains to us that that same power that was present in this story is present for us in the sacramental ministry of the church. Jesus is passing by in the ministry of the church. In the ministry of the priests who can hear confessions and confect the Eucharist. Jesus is passing by. Don't let him pass by. Don't miss your opportunity to reach out and touch the fringe of his garment and be healed. And so when we read the the miracles of Jesus in the Gospels, we see how the miracles are described in terms that oftentimes overlap with the sacraments that we celebrate. 
And in the history of the church, Christian interpreters, the early church fathers, many others, and later doctors of the church, would read these stories and apply them to the sacramental life of the church. For example, we read the story of Jesus' healing of the paralytic. We read, and behold, they brought to Jesus a paralytic, a paralyzed man, lying on his bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Why? Because no one can forgive sins except God alone. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, agero in Greek. Take up your bed and go home. And he rose, agero, and went home. Why does Jesus heal the man? The physical healing is meant to be a sign of something greater. The forgiveness of his sins. The miracles of Jesus make visible the invisible power of mercy. The physical healing is intended here as a sign of spiritual healing, forgiveness of sins. Now what's interesting is that same language of rising up. The man rose up, agero. That's the same language that Paul uses to describe what happens in the sacraments. Paul explains that we rise with Jesus in baptism. In Colossians, we read, You were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him. Sunagero, it's from the same word, agero, here. And Paul goes on to talk about how Christ was raised using that word, agero, again. The man in the story is able to be raised up physically, but the physical raising up is meant to be a sign of the spiritual raising up that Paul links to baptism. And it, in the history of the church, has been recognized that this story is rather remarkable because the paralyzed man isn't able to come to Jesus. Other people have to bring him to Jesus. Look at this. It's rather interesting. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, whose faith? When he saw the faith of the people who were bringing the paralyzed man. So the man is healed because of the faith of those who bring him. And this is why in the Catholic Church we celebrate infant baptism. Because the infant can't speak for himself or for herself. And so the faith of the parents is supplied in the place of the faith of the child. Jesus looks at their faith, as he does in the story. How is Jesus' miracle of mercy, how is that same miracle of the paralyzed man made present for us today? It's in the sacraments. It's in baptism. It's also in the Eucharist. Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, that amazing miracle, which begins with a great act of mercy. They're out in the wilderness, and the people have nothing to eat. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. It begins with mercy. That miracle has long been recognized as having multiple points of contact with Jesus' actions in the upper room when he institutes the Eucharist. How does the story of the feeding of the 5,000 begin? Matthew 14, 14. When it was evening, how does the story of the Last Supper begin? And when it was evening, what happens in Matthew 14? Jesus ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke and gave the loaves to his disciples. In the upper room, Jesus sat at table with the 12 disciples, Matthew 26, 20. Then we go on to read, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, Take, eat, 
this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. The Greek word there for giving thanks is eucharistesos. And that word, eucharistesos, is used again when Jesus feeds the 4,000 in Matthew 15. Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. The feeding of the 5,000 is an anticipation of the Eucharist. Jesus' miracles point us in the direction of the Eucharist. What Jesus does in his public ministry in healing and performing miracles is only the prelude. I thought when I was younger that the life of the church was the epilogue. I couldn't have been more wrong. What Jesus is doing in his public ministry is just preparing us for the greater works that the disciples will do. Something greater than raising up a paralyzed man is raising up a paralyzed soul. Amen? And that is what is present for us in the sacraments. And so when we celebrate the sacraments, when we celebrate these great miracles of mercy, which the sacraments are, we often use the language of the Gospels. For example, in the Mass, before we receive the Eucharist, we say the words of the centurion who had a servant who was healed by Jesus. We read the story in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus entered Capernaum, and a centurion came forward to him, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home in terrible distress. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, I will come, and I will heal him. And the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant shall be healed. Sound familiar? We all know those words. And the centurion goes on to explain why he has such faith that Jesus doesn't even need to come. All he has to do is say the word. He says, I am a man under authority. He's a centurion. He works under Caesar with soldiers under me. And I say to one of my soldiers, go, Peru am I, and he goes. And to another, come, Urkamai, and he comes, in Greek, Urkamai. And to my slave, do this, Poyasan Tuto. And he does it. Look, I tell my servants, go, come, and do this. And, and he says, you can do that. In other words, I have people under me, but I'm like you. So you said, I will come. That's not going to do. Because you shouldn't be the one coming. I tell my servants to come. You're the one in authority. You should be telling me to come. Right? I tell my servants, go. You're the one in real authority. You should say, go. And so what does Jesus say? When Jesus, we read, when Jesus heard him, he marveled, and he said to those who followed him, Truly I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Their men will weep and gnash their teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said what? Go! Right? The centurion said, I tell my servants, go. Jesus said, go. Because the centurion has recognized that Jesus is the true Lord. He says, go, be it done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, Jesus uses that language elsewhere, in Matthew in particular, for his disciples. Just as the centurion said, I tell my servants, go, they go. I tell my soldiers, go. Those under me, I say, go. What does Jesus say at the end of the gospel? In his parting words, he says to the disciples in the Great Commission, go. By the way, he also says something else. Remember what the centurion said? I say to them, do this. What does Jesus say in the upper room? Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus said in the story, one day people will come from east and west and sit at table with dead people. 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One day, people will come from all over and they'll eat with saints. When does that happen? When do we come to a table and celebrate a meal with dead people? Well, they're not dead. They're alive. But in the Eucharist. And so it's appropriate for us, before we come to the table and eat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we say, Lord, I am not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. Why? Because the power that was present when Jesus healed the centurion, that same power is right here in the Eucharist. What do we need to be healed from? From the sin of pride? From the sin of lust? From the sin of anger? From all of these sins of gluttony and greed? The sins that we need to be healed from, things that seem so powerful, things that oftentimes feel we can't extract ourselves from. How can we ever stop committing X sin? That power is present here in the sacramental ministry of the church. Because here in the sacramental ministry of the church, Jesus is present. The same Jesus that the crowds pressed in upon. And yet, people didn't reach out in faith to touch him. Now, Jesus shows us his mercy in these sacraments. And so what does he expect us to do? To reciprocate that mercy. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus, as Paul says, died for us while we were still sinners. Jesus shows mercy to us, and so we must show mercy to others. And as we know, Jesus makes this very clear in the Our Father. Jesus says this in Matthew 6. And forgive us our debts. This is how you are to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He goes on to say, pray this way. Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus gives us his power so that we can be transformed. And so even when we encounter terrible injustice, Jesus gives us the power to forgive. Now, it's much easier to talk about God and his mercy sometimes than it is to think about the mercy that we need to show to other people. It's actually interesting that the word Jesus uses for forgive is actually a financial term. A theomy is the Greek term. And Gary Anderson, a scholar at Notre Dame, points out that in contemporary Greek, the word forgive, aphiomi, remit, and debt, forgive us our debts, did not have the secondary meaning of forgive in sin. If you went to ancient pagan societies and talked about aphiomi, forgive, they would have thought you meant remitting a debt, canceling a debt. That term in pagan culture wasn't used for forgiveness. Wasn't used for sin. But that was the way ancient Jews thought. Ancient Jews thought of sin as a debt. We incur a debt when we sin. And God cancels that debt in forgiving us. And so Jesus oftentimes in the Gospels will use this kind of economic imagery to describe how we are forgiven by God. Matthew 18 is a great example of this. Jesus tells a parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king 
who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began the reckoning, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Now, in the Greek, it's an extraordinary number. It's like 6,000 denarii, or basically what it would amount to to work for 20 years. So a day's labor for about 20 years. 20 years of work. It's like a lifetime of work. 30 to 50. That was the prime of your life in Jesus' day. Priests could only serve from 30 to 50. So you really only had 20 good years of work in you in the ancient world. I mean, this was your prime time. Somebody owed their whole lifetime of work. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. That's what would happen in the ancient world. If you couldn't pay off a debt, you were sold into slavery. Your family would be sold into slavery. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. The man doesn't have a way to pay back. If you thought that there was a way somebody could pay you back what they owed, you would put them in prison. And what they did to you in prison is they would torture you. And the idea was eventually you would cough it up. Or a family member would come. And out of shame, we can't allow our family member to be tortured all day. Somebody would come and pay the bill. But this guy had nothing. So he was just going to be sold into slavery. He had no family member, nobody. And so what happened? Out of pity for him, the Lord of that servant released him and forgave the debt. He forgave him, canceled the debt. But that same servant, as he went out, came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's a hundred days wages. So 20 years versus a hundred days. It's still a lot of money, but it's, it's, it's doable. You could pay that back. And so this wicked servant, who just was forgiven his own massive debt, finds this other guy who owes him considerably less, and he seizes him by the throat, and he says, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down, and he besought him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused, and he went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you besought me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord delivered him to the jailers till he should pay. And the Greek word there is torturers, really. Delivered him to the torturers till he should pay all his debt. Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We are forgiven a great debt, our sin. And so when we come to Mass, what are we expected to do? Forgive one another. The sign of peace is an amazing instance of that, where we reach out and we forgive other people. We, we show our love for one another. Now, obviously, it's a, symbol, it's a symbol. I actually knew somebody in my parish who took this really literally. And if she had a grudge against somebody at the sign of peace, she would get up and she would find them, give them the sign of peace, which was kind of backwards because then you kind of look to see who she was angry at. <laughs> I remember a few times she came up to me, I'm like, <laughs> she was very earnest, but it wasn't much of a secret what was going on there. But this is what we are to do in the Mass. And we forgive others, but we also show mercy to other people. And John Bergsman is going to talk about this, so it's a good segue. We show mercy to other people by forgiving other people's debt and helping them financially. God helps us in a sort of supernatural economy where he forgives us our debts and he gives us heavenly treasure, heavenly payment, right? Jesus says, your reward will be great in heaven. Well, the Greek word there for reward, mistos, it's actually the word for payment. I'm sure John Bergman will go into much greater detail and explain it far better than I will, and he'll be much funnier about it too. 
But what are we supposed to do? If God has shown us mercy, then we should show other people mercy. And so Jesus says in Luke's Gospel, Give to everyone who begs from you. And of him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. And as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. Give to everyone who begs from you. Not long ago, I was here in Texas for a conference, and they were taking me back to the airport, and the driver who worked for the Fullness of Truth organization was taking me to the airport, and we got to the airport, and there was a homeless man standing by the corner. He said, hey, we got time. Just give me one second. He pulled over, and I thought he was going to reach into his wallet and give him some money. And that always makes me nervous because you never know what people are going to do with that, you know, with that gift. And so he pulled up to the side of the curb where the man was, and he then opened up his middle council. And to my surprise, there was like a refrigerator unit right there in his middle council. It had all this ice. It was ice. And, and there were these cold sandwiches in there. And he reached out and he pulled out a cold sandwich and a cold bottle of water. And he said, here you go. God bless you. And then he drove, drove away. I said, that was really nice of you to give that man your lunch. And he said, no, I wasn't my lunch. I know that we have a lot of homeless people here in town and so what I've decided to do is I, I don't feel comfortable giving people money, so I just keep uh, an, a, a cold sandwich and a, and a drink so that I can always have something to give to people who beg from me. Give to everyone who begs from you. I know myself. It's an easy cop-out. Oh, I don't know what they're going to do with it. We should feel challenged. We should go out of our way to help other people. Why? That's what the Lord did. He went out of his way. Literally, he came down from heaven and died on the cross to pay the debt that we couldn't pay. And so in the liturgy, as we celebrate the miracle of mercy in the sacraments, what do we do? We pass around the collection basket. I think sometimes we think of the offertory of the Mass as the intermission. There was a long homily. I'm going to need a few minutes. It's kind of empty our intellectual palate there, kind of refresh. Whew, a few minutes to sit down before we get back to business. Let's just pass the money around. Let's mentally check out for a little while. How are you doing down there? Pretty good. All right. We've got six kids, or five kids, six on the way, number six on the way. And I'll tell you what. We could use an intermission. But I'll tell you what, that's not what the offertory is meant for. Before we celebrate the gift God gives to us, we are to make a gift of ourselves. And a real gift of ourselves. A dollar bill. All right. No, a real gift. Something that hurts. Mother Teresa would say, give till it hurts. Do we really need that extra TV? Do we really need that extra car? Do we really need to go out for dinner tomorrow night? Do we really need all of these things? Give to everyone who begs from you. Jesus says, he goes on to say at the end of this passage, your reward will be great. You will be, like, you will be the sons of the Most High. Why? Because what are we called to do? I'll talk about this in my second talk. We are called to be conformed to the image of the Son, as Paul says. Jesus is a son. We are to be sons in the son. Jesus gave himself. We should give ourselves. Be merciful as your father is merciful. This is what the ministry of the church is all about. We can't receive that divine mercy and then not show it to other people. Jesus teaches the disciples this at the end of Matthew's gospel. I mean, at the end of Matthew 18 or in the middle of Matthew 18. I'll close this in my last passage. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell all your family members about what terrible people you know. No, wait, I'm sorry. That's what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and complain to all your, your co-workers who can do nothing about what just happened. No. I once heard a really good... Uh, definition of gossip in the workplace. Gossip in the workplace is complaining to other people who can do nothing about the problem you're complaining about. They can do nothing to help the problem, but you still talk to them about it. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. 
between you and him alone. Important advice. Notice what Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, you say, well, it's up to them. They sin. They better come and tell me. It's in their, it's in their court. No. If your brother sins against you, you go. You say, well, it's not my problem. No, it is your problem. Jesus is making it your problem. If he listens to, to you, you have gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And then listen to Jesus' language here. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, oh my goodness, who would ever do such a thing? Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Which means what? What did Jesus do to the tax collectors? He shunned them. He had nothing to do with them. No, he invited them to Peter's house. (laughs) Treat them like a tax collector does not mean be rude to them. Honey, the tax collectors are here. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, and he's speaking now specifically to the disciples in their apostolic ministry, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. What's the context here? Forgiveness. Forgiveness. Two of you agree on anything. You're asking for forgiveness and resolution to conflict. It's not like if two of you agree on anything, oh, okay, we agree that we both need a Porsche. (laughs) For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Then Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often shall shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Have to keep forgiving them? How many times? Now, here's Peter. He is going to be the head of the church. Jesus has already identified him as the rock. Here's Peter, the first pope. How many times does the vicar of Christ on earth have to forgive? How many times do the apostles have to forgive the sins of others? Seven times? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven which is a symbolic number for innumerable amounts of times. Jesus took the tax collectors and the sinners to Peter's house. And in the church, that's where we are. In the house of Peter. And this year, Peter has declared for us the year of mercy. Peter, Pope Francis As Catholics, we live in his house. He's put over the house, like Eliakim in the Old Testament, who was given the keys of the kingdom of David. He was put over the house. Jesus invites us to the church. He invites us to Peter's house, where we can experience his miracle of mercy at table with him. Jesus reaches out to us, and he invites us to that table. And remember what Jesus does. To Bartimaeus, sitting by the road, who's looking for mercy. Jesus sends his disciples to bring him. Jesus sends us to go out and bring others to Peter's house. We need to go out, my brothers and sisters, and invite others to return to us to the sacraments, to return with us to the sacraments. Because here, the power of Christ is made present. What was visible in the sacraments, I mean, sorry, what was visible in the miracles of Jesus is now made invisibly present in the sacraments. And yet, that power comes to us and brings an expectation that now we can be transformed and we can forgive others and we can give of ourselves to help others. Forgive others, yes, forgive their debts, but also to help others in their needs.
This concludes the Gospel of Divine Mercy Conference Talk 3, presented by Dr. Michael Barber, Fellow of the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. To learn more about the work of the St. Paul Center and to access this extensive archive of resources on Scripture, the sacraments, sacred liturgies, and much more, visit their website, stpaulcenter.com. Discerning Hearts would like to thank Dr. Scott Hahn and all those associated with the St. Paul Center for the opportunity to bring you this presentation. Discerning Hearts is a nonprofit Catholic media apostolate dedicated to spiritual formation. To hear and or to download freely hundreds of other programs dedicated to spiritual formation, visit discerninghearts.com. We pray this has been helpful for you and that you will tell a friend and visit discerninghearts.com. Discerning Hearts.